Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Gaming Moguls podcast, the only gaming podcast where, according to Jake, 20 is greater than 25. I'm your host, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my millennial co-host, Mr. Jake Klopfenstein. Jake, how you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully. You pronounced my name right this time. That's good. <laughs> I usually get pretty close, don't I? Yeah, you do a good job. You do a good job. And for all the listeners, 20 is greater than 25 all the time, every <laughs> single time. Approximately 50% of the time, yes. I still need to do the math. I will do the math for you and make a spreadsheet. We got an action-packed podcast, so let's hop right into it, Mark. Right on. What'd you do this weekend? Well, Jake, this weekend we had Con of the North here in Minneapolis. Con of the North is the biggest board gaming convention of the year in the Twin Cities area that's strictly around board gaming that's held up in Plymouth, Minnesota. We typically try to make a point of making it up to at least some of that. So that was kind of a challenging weekend for me because I teach ski lessons all day, either Saturday or Sunday. And it's always the weekend after Valentine's Day and the kids have a million things going on and so on and so forth. But I was able to make it out Saturday evening this week and I never actually made it past the lobby. I walked in the door. I ran into Uncle Kirk and Jeff and Troy and Adrian and all our gaming friends. And then right behind them was Bill and JJ and and J-Mac and everybody else. So literally... We sat in the lobby all evening long playing games. That was my con of the North. Did you at least sit in a, a, an actual table height chair or did you actually sit on a couch with a table? Uh, no, it was a couch. It was actually a big wingback chair. So I was oh, in a cushy chair yes. that I had to very uncomfortably balance on the front edge of and lean forward over the coffee table in order to play. Fun. Yeah, I did sign up for Con of the North, but I regrettably also booked to some friends tied up to my cabin this weekend. And usually Con of the North is actually on President's Day weekend. And I always just assume that's later in February. So I was like, oh, February 15th weekend, that'll be fine. Why don't we go to my cabin? And after I'd already sent out all the invitations and everybody had made sure to take off some work and stuff to head up north, regrettably it was the same weekend. So I had to miss out. But Kirk has my t-shirt because they thought I was his kid. So they gave me all of his stuff and life's good. So I get up on my my Con of the North (laughs) t-shirt sometimes Yeah, speaking of Kirk, kid, I left out Caden in that bunch, too. So, hey, Caden. Caden was there. Um, (laughs) He was there. But yeah, it's it's usually a fun little convention. They hold it at a little, uh, the Radiston out in in Plymouth area, right? Uh, No, it is the Crown Plaza is what it's called now. I'm the worst. Crown Plaza, so. Yes. Yeah. Now, the one thing, we both have a significant beef with Con of the North. We're glad they have it. We make a point of attending and playing along on the reindeer games, but it's not the greatest con for pickup gaming. Like, they really want no. you to schedule out a D&D session and do that. And if you want to sit down and play games just with your buddies or something like that, which, you know, technically speaking, we could have just done at my house and saved ourselves a bunch of trouble. But I like the kind of environment there. So they don't really enable that well. There is a room, the Undead Viking room, where you can go there and play that. But, you know, other than that, there's a lot of people crowded around coffee tables in the lobby trying to play games. Right. And and it'd normally be okay about booking events, but there's it's not that big of a con. So it's not like Gen Con where a lot of games are being played. And to be honest, there's still not that many evented games at Gen Con that's that's adequate, especially for people that no. are more into heavy games. It, it's just you don't always run into everything you want to play. So I, I was sad I got a miss, but not the worst con to miss in the world. Yeah, this one actually tends to be real heavy on like mini games and RPGs more so than right. board games. Right. And that stuff's great. Play what you dig, but not for us. No, for sure. So You know, Jake, you and I have this conversation frequently, be the change you want in the world. And we often thought that being that change was going to be running our own track at Con of the North. And now that we have our own bully pulpit platform, hey, we're going to call it right now and just give you a wink into the future on this one. We are looking forward to as one of our goals for the gaming moguls is we want to have mogul con sometime in the near future. And We want it to be all the things we want it to be in other cons. We want it to be friendly and intimate and buddies of the con and lots of open gaming and kind of an escape away from the city a little bit. And we're still putting details around that, but I think this is going to be really fun and keep your eye open for an announcement sometime in the next few months. Absolutely. The the general time frame we're looking at is early 2020. So winter in Minnesota, a great time to be somewhere. (laughs) Precisely. But hey, you know, it's so funny when I go to a friend's cabin in the summertime, Everybody gets super snarky when it gets like really rainy for the weekend or windy and they can't go out and play in the water and so forth. I get excited about that because it means I get to game a whole bunch. You're weird. I much prefer the water. I'd rather be (laughs) swimming outside, playing volleyball, hanging out. I fully admit that one. But yeah, I'm actually happy when it rains and is crappy on a cabin weekend in the summer. So what do you do? 
speaking of being the change in the world, one of the things that we have looked at and decided that we can do better is, Jake? The mogul scale. The mogul scale. And honestly, I really want to cut in like a uh, big drum roll ahead of that and so forth. But I promised no more. <laughs> no, no cheesy sound effects. No, no more sound effects. effects. You had one chance and you <laughs> used it. That's it. I know. Dang it. So the mogul scale. Why on earth are we doing this? Well, the big problem with Board Game Geek's rating scale, and for those of you that don't know, the rating scale is a one to five that tries to categorize both the how difficult is the game to learn along with how difficult is the strategy of the game. But there is absolutely no way to delineate the two of them. So a game might be really easy to learn, but really deep in strategy or vice versa. And there's no way to tell from that single number. So that's where we're trying to come in. We're trying to fix the mogul scale, which is going to delineate these two different things. The difference is rules complexity and then strategy complexity. The idea being that we have a two factor rating on there. We have a one through five for rules complexity. And we have an A through E in strategy complexity. And we'll put those two together and give you a mogul rating on what we feel the difficulty is for that game. So this is our opinion only. It's incredibly subjective. To really make this probably work, we'd need much, much, much more people. But take everything that we say with a grain of salt with this scale. This is just going to be a way to kind of put our opinions onto paper about the weight. And if you've listened to us enough, you should have a pretty good idea on where our tastes and biases are. And you can adjust yourself accordingly. So if you can say, well, they typically like things that are heavier than I do. Maybe I should notch this one up a notch or the hey, these guys are a little more omnigamers. I like things even heavier. I'm going to take it down a notch for me. Go ahead and do that. This is only meant as a baseline and you should adjust accordingly. We think that from here on out, what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple seconds at the end of every game we talk about and we're just going to give it a mogul scale so that you at least have a taste on where this fits in the pantheon of super simple versus buckle up, buddy, you're in for a ride. We also actually are going to reserve the right to give something a zero in both case. And like a zero zero would be literally rock, paper, scissors, right? where it's not a game and it takes five seconds to explain. Right. Probably not going to ever use that, but we reserve the right to use it if something ever in there. And by the way, uh, heaven forbid we ever get a zero E. Oh, that God. Would be <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Ridiculous. So let's talk about that. The idea is that you can plot these things on an XY graph and you put Y is equal to the rules complexity and you put the A through E equal to the strategy complexity on the X axis. And then you can plot those things out into quadrants and you start seeing some interesting things when you see those quadrants. So, for example, lower left corner would be your 1A corner, and that's going to be primarily inhabited by party games. They're quick. There's no strategy to them. You're up and running and you have some laughs and have some beer and pretzels and life is good. On the flip corner of that one, the 5E corner, the upper right, those are epic games. Those are big day long monstrosities that there's an hour long teach and there's a lot of heads down thinking. And these are very, very heavy epic games that take a long time. Where things start to get interesting is in the opposite corners. Right. The lower right is the 1E corner. Those are what they're where the games for the ages kind of live. These are these super simple strategy games like Go and chess that have very low rules complexity, but extremely high strategy complexity. Now, there is definitely a group of people that love those. I do not. I think they're super dry, but that's where those games live. Right. And the upper left hand corner, Jake, that's your favorite. I know. Oh, yeah, of course. That's the really, really, really hard games that are incredibly fiddly with very little actual strategy coming from it. So those are just gross games. And to be candid, just because a game's heavy in rules or heavy in strategy, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. For example, if you are a three-level rules complexity and a C-level strategy, that's great. You're one-to-one there. Anything along that one-to-one line, that's good. That's where it should be. That's kind of what you're expecting. Anything that is lighter rules but deeper in strategy... Maybe that's your thing. Maybe that's something that you really like. That's something that Mark and I really like, where there's less rules to set up and get in the way, but we can actually start playing each other quick and instead of wrestling with the game, if you will. And the people that like that upper left, the uh, the 5A corner with lots of rules and very little strategy complexity, we call them actuaries or accountants. Absolutely. You can just do that. The government is a whole game. <laughs> there it is. So <laughs> the government's a great place. Right. For you. Why don't we first start off? With uh, a little bit of examples of just it'll take a minute or two just to explain what we kind of think of for these weights of games for each number and then for each strategy. Does that work? Real Perfect. Quick? OK. Yeah, that works. So great. This will be a little rapid fire and we're not going to give our big explanation of games. So I apologize. You may just not know these games, but if you do, this will be fast. So ones are pretty light rules games. So let's think of Insider. 
Azul, King Domino, and Telestrations. These are games you're going to be able to set up and play in about three minutes. Two is your games that are kind of light to midweight Euros. Um, we're thinking like Lords of Waterdeep, Concordia, Ethnos. Games like that where there's not a lot of rules. Maybe you're just playing a card and doing something, something along those lines, or you have a couple options on your turn. You probably don't need a player yet for these style of games. Three is where you're kind of in the midweight to mid-heavy Euro land. That is Caverna. I'm going to be a little sassy here and say most splatter games exist here. Um, we, <laughs> Jake flexing on us. Well, that is that is actually splatter's whole proposition is that they have very deep strategy and reasonable rules. Wait, completely agree. Yokohama and Roll for the Galaxy games that don't have that art of rules, but you're not something you're going to be able to explain in five ten minutes. It's going to be a little longer than that. Then we're getting into the fours. This is like heavy, mid-heavy Euro land for at least us. This is where we think Great Western Trail lives, where Gaia Project lives, and most 18xx games. Honestly, I think 18xx games are down to like a two for me and you because we've just played them so much, but that is at least where we thought we should put these. Yeah, and your personal ratings on these things will definitely change based on how well you know the game. Like if you know the 18xx system, you might think a new one has very additional rule complexity, but if you've never heard of or seen 18xx things, those are squarely in the fives right. if, you, if it's a brand new thing to right. you. So speaking of fives, that's where we're putting your first 18xx game. Um, that's where we're going to put Lisboa and High Frontier are kind of some examples from us. And fives, fives to me are something where as a game runner, you're going to have to prepare for that game extensively. You're also probably going to have to have uh, player aids along with that or cheat sheets on the turn structure or the options that you can do. And it's probably going to take you 45 minutes to an hour or more to teach that game. Right. So that's what a five looks like. And also, even with experienced gamers who play a lot of different games, don't expect to even really understand what the game's doing in the first couple of plays. You know, you're just trying to wrestle with the mechanisms to even see what this thing can open up to you. Yep, exactly. And that actually that statement actually kind of crosses over into the other factor, the strategy complexity, because you may understand the rules on the first playthrough, but you may not understand how the machine moves strategically. Right. And so along the same thing, we're going to list all of the same games we've previously listed. So starting with A, these are games that you're kind of just doing. They're kind of just activities. And we're going to put Telestrations and Insider on there. Obviously, there's a decent amount of leeway between these. You know, maybe there's a strong A or a light A, something along those lines. Then moving down further, there's B. These are the games that have a little bit of strategy, but it's kind of something you can keep a decent conversation going and you won't need to really spend a lot of time agonizing each individual turn. We're putting Lords of Waterdeep here more as a, it might be a three, it might be a C, but we're putting it here. King Domino, Ethnos, and Azul. Finally, we're going to see where these are games that are starting to, you actually have to think about your turns a lot. There's a lot of strategy here, a lot more to unpack. Maybe stuff will open up when you play it more repeatedly. These are games like Concordia, Roll for the Galaxy, and Yokohama. Finally, we're getting into D, which is the kind of uh, the equivalent of four. So there's a decent amount of strategy, but you might be able to play pretty well on your first couple of plays and actually understand the strategy on your first thing. I'm going to put Caverna, Gaia Project, High Frontier, the basic game, Great Western Trail, and Lisboa in this category. And then finally, we have the e-games where after repeated play, you just the game keeps on opening up to you in ways that you wouldn't imagine and things that you wouldn't even understand why the rules were existent in that way in the beginning. So we're putting Splatter games here, 18xx games here, and the full version of High Frontier with all the rules. Those are games that a lot of people will look at and say, wow, that breaks my brain or that, you know, that really makes my brain hurt. Right. Is in that E category. So wrapping this together, putting the two together like they're intended to be used, game like Azul for us would be a 1B, right? Great Western Trail would be a 4D. Concordia, 2C. Well, let's look at like a, uh, oh. So uh, Food Chain Magnet, 3E. Maybe. I think it's a 4E. That's the one one that's harder than all the other ones. Yeah, I think. That, that one is a bad example. But point being that you combine the number and the letter together to get your overall rating that can then be graphed out. Got it? Perfect. All right. Now, I guarantee that there will be people out there that disagreed with some or all of what we just said. And you know what? That's for your inside voice. Go right ahead. We're, we're probably wrong. This is where it stands for us. And we carry all of our biases with us this system is very subjective oh god you would not believe the argument we had on where ticket to ride right. would live on this scale to the point where we just had to leave it off right, just because it, <laughs> it, it depends and we just want to break apart the the discussion quickly about the rules complexity versus the strategy complexity without having to explain it so now we can just say a number and a letter and you guys hopefully will understand our little scale 
For sure. So that being said, let's talk about what we played this week. I have a great idea for this episode. I have this new groundbreaking thought that we should jump in and do that I haven't even sprung on you, Jake, and you're going to love it. Will I? You ready? I'm ready. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think we should talk about games. Holy crap. Let's talk about games. Let's do it. <laughs> let's just talk about some games. We had a chance to play a lot of games this week, and we've actually spent the last couple of episodes talking about a lot of other things. So we're going to talk about a lot of games this week. So if you came here to listen to games, good on you. You're going to get an entire beakful in this episode. Absolutely. Okay, so one of the challenges we had with getting some games played this week is the fact that we are having a record-breaking snowfall here in Minnesota this February, and we were blessed with another nine full inches of snow on on Wednesday night, which caused most of our game group to actually bail on our Wednesday night uh, reindeer games. Week. Week. Because as it turned out, after three hours of shoveling my driveway, there was nothing I needed more than gaming, so... I bucked up, got in my Acura MDX, headed out on the road to discover that literally I had the freeways to myself, and I made the fastest 15-mile commute from Edina to Roseville that I've ever made in my entire life. Literally, I had the roads to myself. So we got there, and because everybody else had bailed, we didn't have any two-player games along with us, or so I thought. Until Jake whips out into his little board gaming backpack and pulls out... Leaving Earth, designed by Joseph Fatula. And I said... Yes, you were very excited. It was perfect. It completely solved the issue. I was mad because I bought a couple of two-player war games, and I was like, God dang it, I would have loved to bring those. And then I realized this is better for us. You, we both love leaving Earth. Well, and I've been trying to get you to play Codex forever in a month, and <laughs> but it all got better when you pulled Leaving Earth out because, boy, we love we that did. game. So we've talked about this game before. Check a previous episode or another episode of Thought My Head. But Leaving Earth is a game that is trying to encapsulate the space race. It is the conquest of space. And we are in the 1950s. We're a bunch of different company or countries. Sorry. So used to playing 18xx games. We're a bunch of countries who are racing to space to try to accomplish these different missions that are worth different amount of victory points. Last time we talked about it, I said, I'm sure there's some person that knows this game a little bit more than us and is yelling at me because one of our main complaints is that it wasn't super interactive. And turns out I was right on my assumption that someone was probably mad at us because we did get something wrong. The way that interaction actually works in this game is you can share technology. So let's say Mark invented the Atlas rocket. And every time you invent a technology, it comes with three success cards, either successful. They're all randomly thing, but either option for the success card is either success, minor failure and major failure. And by testing these components, you can actually remove those cards from the deck. And once they're all gone, it's automatically successful. But what you can also do is you can share that technology for other people for kind of whatever, maybe money, maybe other technology, figure it out. And so what you can actually do in this game is I had invented Atlas rockets and spent a lot of time testing them and making sure that it worked, but it still only had one success card on it. For me, it was a success. So I said, Mark, I'll give you this technology. It only come with one success card instead of three, and then you don't need to test these really expensive Atlas rockets. And you said, sure, you paid me a whole bunch of money for it, and it worked out really well. And that completely fixed the interaction issues that I was worried about. Yeah, it definitely was not multiplayer solitaire this time around. Now, I'm not sure if I gave you the win by doing that or not. Like, on one hand, you saved me a pile of years by not having to test Saturn Vs, but on the flip side... I gave you enough money where you could to go ahead and do your giant mission to go land on the moon and snatch the or go land on Mercury, right. actually, and snatch the amount of victory points that put you in a prohibitive lead. So was it good? Did I overpay you? I don't know. Yeah. It'll be interesting to play that out and see how that economy actually works now that we know that that's right. A thing. And it just made it so cool. The other thing that's also interesting is you can take people's components up to space with rendezvous and leave them in Earth orbit for later pickup. So let's say, for example... I'm taking something up to space and I have an extra six mass that I can carry up. I could say, hey, table, pay me a couple of bucks and I'll take something that a dollar per a million dollars per mass and I'll take something up to space for you. Tell me what you want. And I think that could also be really cool. But I don't know if it helped us that much because it seemed like we weren't really assembling that much in Earth orbit. Well, we were the thing is, we did not play this out fully. We only played half the game and we were just getting to the point where that was starting to become like a real required right, thing. Because all do. the close missions were done. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy to get a probe into space. You don't need anybody's help to do that. It's pretty easy. It's tougher, but still not horrendous to land a guy on the moon. But we were just starting to get to the point where like I was. I was mathing out how to get to Venus and land on Venus. And my my calculations said that I needed to boost, use a Saturn V to boost a Soyuz into low, into Earth orbit, 
And then I needed to boost another one up there. And then I needed to get the probe and an atlas. And then I needed to assemble all that stuff. And then away I go. Oof. Right. <laughs> I might have needed some help on right, that one. To get everything up there, which would have been more interesting moving down the line. So you can just take all your big rockets to actually take your other big rockets into space. Exactly. Exactly. So, man, that was great. I would say I rated that a soft 10 last time. May even be a 10. I don't know. It's 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 up there with among my favorite games and tops on my gotta have it list. And this playthrough definitely cemented that for me. Same boat. I absolutely love this game. And I'm pretty much always going to leave it in my bag because it's such a perfect two player game for when it's just me and you. Like we don't really like a lot of head to head games, I would say. And this one worked out so well to just figure that out. I'd go so far as to say this was a three player game. It was you versus me versus the game. Yeah, absolutely. We're just trying to figure it out. It was awesome. <laughs> the other mistake we did not make this time is we left the expansion off and there we we didn't suffer for it. No. There was still plenty of game plenty, there to play. Absolutely plenty. And to be candid, I just bought the thing because I wanted the pads and I was on the website. And I was like, oh, that looks cool. And I just bought it. I wanted it. It was stupid. Oh, I definitely want all the expansions as part of it. But all right. So drinking our own Kool-Aid here, Jake. Leaving Earth. Where is that on the mogul scale? Rules complexity. I would give it a three. Agree. And I'd give it Strategy? a strategy. D or an E, depending on how deep you want to go into it. We kind of view this game as like just a fun activity. Maybe it's not really to win. You know, you're not really going to math out every single instance on whether or not it's the best thing for you to do. Kind of flying by the seat of your pants and trying to get people into space. Because if you would have really mathed out and said, is it worth it for me to actually give Jake this $25 right now for XYZ thing? I don't know if it'd be as fun, but if you could probably do that, it'd definitely be an E at that point in time. Let's call it a 3D. Sound good? Sounds good with me. Agreed. Do you agree? 3D. Perfect. All right. Okay. So I see you got a chance to play some rolling rights this week as well. I did. So I went up to my cabin with a bunch of my friends who aren't as inter- interested in heavy games as we are. So I brought the ever awesome welcome to dot, dot, dot. I hate writing this game online because every time you write it, you have to put it like in parentheticals or bold it or something. So people don't think it's part of the sentence. But Welcome To is a game by Benoit Turpin, and the goal of it is it's, it's, it's a roll-and-write game where your business developer is developing different neighborhoods. And the way that this is done is it's technically not a roll-and-write, it's a flip-and-write. So there's three decks of cards, you flip over a card, it gives a house number that you're actually going to label on each house, on each row. You have to n- numerically increase the houses, but you can skip any amount. And then every card also is associated with the back side of another card, which gives you an action. I originally thought this game was really easy. I've played with some of my friends and they really liked it because it's a really good game. It is not that easy of a teach. I thought that it comes with these beautiful player aids, in my opinion, that really explain the game in an iconographic way. My friends just couldn't understand and suss out the pictograms there. Yeah, I've had that challenge, too, where I think you often have to go back in and (laughs) re-explain things more than you should probably should have to and i even i even use the i even use the little card saying okay here's what we're doing what you have to do is you have to number the little things on the houses on these each different street on your turn you're going to write a number you can write it anywhere you want left to right it has to go lowest to highest it can skip any number in there and then i explain each one of the actions using the pictogram explaining when you do get it do you do have to have the number actually associate with the card in the house whether it be for pools or something along those lines or if it's like the BIS where you write a nine and then you get to write a nine or then you get to write a four B or whatever number B anywhere you want. And it just it didn't work as easily as I thought it would. Yeah, I think it's a case where it's maybe it's not that it's hard. It's not it's definitely not a hard game. It's not a hard rules complexity, but it's it's hard for what it is. Maybe that's the answer. That makes sense. And also there's a couple of gotchas, you know. Like the fact that almost all of them do kind of need to be associated with the house in some way. Like, for example, when you're doing the park, you do have to cross out the the tree on that street. But then when you're doing a fence, it can be anywhere you want. But then when you're doing the pool, it has to be on the specific house that you wrote the number. So the three different cases of proximity for where the special power interacts with the house or not makes it a little confusing. Did everybody like it, though? How'd it go? Oh, absolutely. They loved it. It's great. And what's good about this game, too, is if you don't want to keep on playing, you can just drop out. No big deal. You're not hurting anybody. Right. Well, yeah, Everybody's for sure. kind of doing their own thing. It's a multiplayer solitaire game. Go ahead. Go. If, if you want to be done, be right ahead. Go get some coffee. Go hang out. But it's some of my friends' favorite games, and they really liked it. So win. That's a win for me. Yeah, I do like the game. Uh, funny, I don't know that I like it as much. Like, I was super jazzed about getting this one. It was very high on my list of things to get at Gen Con, and I do really like it. But I would probably put it mid-pack for my roll and write games. Interesting. That's kind of how I am with Railroad Inc. I was in love with it, but I just can't bring it out anymore. I don't know what's going on, but I still really like it. 
I think it's really good for maybe gamers, but maybe for people that aren't as used to kind of weird embodiment of rules in games it might be a little harder, but I think it's great. I also kickstarted the little thematic boards from the second printing Kickstarter, which should be coming out soon. I'm very excited. It seems it comes like a Halloween board and a winter board and all this fun stuff. I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you have that. I slept on that one. I thought real hard about it, but uh, I sort of decided I got enough Welcome To. All right. Well, I was Welcome To by Benoit Turpin. Where would you rate Welcome To? So I'd probably give it a 2B, not a 2C. Um, I think it's a great game. doesn't have that much rules, but it does do a little bit more than I would like. And the strategy is interesting and you make a lot of choices, but I don't think it's a C. I think it's a 2B. Okay. I would probably give it a 2C just because in order to do well, there is a lot of brain busting and brain burning around it. So, you know, not that the, not that sure. you could make an argument either way. I give it a 2C. Jake gives it a 2B. Cool. The other big game we got to play on Wednesday night at our gaming night was we got to pull out and dive into some old hotness. And that bit of old hotness is a game I've seen discussed somewhat strangely a lot recently and realized that Jake had never played it and it probably needed a chance to get out and see the light of day. This game is one of our family favorites. It is Vlada Chavadal's Dungeon Pets. This is a game that is a spiritual sequel, I guess, to Dungeon Lords. Dungeon Pets is a game where you are a fantasy shop owner that are trying to raise these little monsters as well as you can, care for all of their needs. You have an exhibition where you show them off and show what a nice pet you have in your pet store. Then you try to sell them to buyers based on their particular needs. Along the way, you have to care for them and meet all of their needs, like playing for them and feeding them and cleaning up their poop and all of those tasks. You do that via an action selection mechanism where you bid a certain amount of little imps and whoever has the most imps gets to take the action first and you break it on down the line. This is a fantastic game, really whimsical, surprisingly crunchy for something that seems so fancifully fun. There's a lot of hard decisions to make around where you put your workers and how do you manage your creatures. What did you think of it, Jake? Well, if you ever seen our Instagram, I did really, really well. Oh, at this. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> I think I almost doubled you guys. I, I don't know why, but this game worked out for me really well. I thought it was neat. I have never played this game. I've also never played Dungeon Lords before we played it once. So it's just one play of the game and it's only with no expansions in it. Correct, Mark? Correct. We were playing the base vanilla game. I thought it was pretty fun. It's definitely not one I'm clamoring out to go buy, but for what it was, I'm fine playing at any time. I thought that the mechanism of having the little monsters grow up and get more needy with time and then you can sell them at different times was really cool because you can foresee kind of their needs and how you can actually satiate them down the line. I liked the worker placement aspect of this game. So what you're doing is... It's a worker placement game like any other game, but you're secretly bidding on how many guys you want to attribute to each one of your worker placement pools that you're then going to place on different locations. So you have, I think, six workers to start and a handful of gold, but you can double or triple or quadruple. You could put all of them on one action and then you actually only will ever take one action. The actions don't get any stronger, but depending on how many guys you put there, you can go earlier in the turn order. So I thought that was really cool. You can also use gold to substitute people for that. And I thought that was one of the most interesting things about that game. Yeah, so you can bid up and take a stronger action, but that goes away. You don't get that back. It's a consumable resource that you can use to increase your bid. And there's a lot of strategy around right. that. And also, there are certain areas like buying a pet that require you to commit some gold to that. Right. And certain locations that require you to place two right. guys to take a to take a station home. And I thought that was really neat. But what's also cool is it's not like you have a pool and you're going to say, OK, well, I'm actually going to bid six to go first. You have to do this hidden and everyone's bidding and getting all of their worker pools to actually bid on the stuff one at a time. And then you reveal. So maybe you think that someone's going to go for something and they all don't. And you just wasted four of your guys on a single action when the next person to actually do an action, they all did twos. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought that was really cool. And it made it really interactive in a fact that you can like really have to think and read their position and see what they'd want which I always like about a game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of layers to this game. And I think for a I think it maybe is one of the most thematic heavy games that I've run across where this game is just oozing with theme. And one of the discussions we had after the fact was teaching this game is weirdly challenging because of the fact that, well, for straight up, there's a lot of rules to this game. There's a lot of little exceptions and there's a lot of places to explain and a lot of stuff in there. But it's all so thematic that you kind of have to put the flavor in it to get the full experience of the game as well. And that makes the teach maybe longer than it should be, but it also really gives such a nice spirit to the game as you're teaching it. 
Completely agree. My main and really only complaint with this game is just a little fiddly. We also played another kind of older game by Vlada Chivadl, um, the same designer as Dungeon Pets recently called uh, Through the Ages. There's just a lot of maintenance on each turn. XYZ amount of guys need to leave and then a certain amount of guys come back in. Guys, I'm sorry, I should be more specific here. Um, amount of the monsters leave from the Bible pens and they get taken out to the farms. Then you get some food and then some of them will grow up stronger. And then a certain number of new ones will come in depending on when the dummy player or where the dummy player is. And then the, the, the pens leave. There's just a lot of like little maintenance that was kind of annoying. And I don't think that was that much of an issue for me because I just didn't really plan on it. I just made sure you'd manage everything and I was focused on my own stuff. But it kind of was a detractor for the game, honestly, for me. I just really couldn't wrap my head around what was actually going on in between turns. Yeah, this one is a bit of a monster if you've never played it before and just jumped into it cold. There is a lot of maintenance on this one. I have probably played this a dozen times, so I more or less know what to do somewhat off the tip of my head. I think the interesting twist was this is the first time I'd ever played it at three. So the dummy player thing was a new flavor that I'd never had to interact with before. But we still didn't know which one of the the pens would leave each turn. I thought it was the lowest one in strength value. But then you said, no, it's the lowest one at the bottom. And I took the lowest one in strength value off almost every single time that I was that you told. Well, me to the reason it. is, is that in four players, virtually 100 percent of the time, all but one are sold out. So you never have to make that decision. Oh, okay. There's always going to be two taken. There's right. never yeah, not. Yeah. Okay. Virtually every time. That makes time. sense. That makes sense. But I, I, and then the other, the other main complaint that I had with this, which is not really as much of a complaint about the game. It was more about the production. It could be a little bit less busy of a board. The action spaces were not as clearly defined as they are in kind of most modern worker games with a really consistent look across the board. And then I thought certain things would happen in each spot and maybe some pictograms that actually show what you do when you go there would be a little helpful. That'd be it. But it's, it's highly thematic, air quotes. Yes, because they put a little space for a little meat wagon for you to put all your little meat things. And Mark has the little meeple source wooden things. So it was really cute and looking <laughs> on the board. Those are cool. But had they used that space and made a pool elsewhere outside of the board and used more space to maybe explain kind of what goes on there would have been a little helpful for me in general. Yep. But it looked cool. It looked pretty cool. Yep. So where were we going to put this thing with the mogul rating? I give this one a... 4D. It's plenty fiddly with rules, and there's a lot of strategy. I'd probably give it a 4C, but that's just because I did really well at it, and so I thought the strategy was easy. I don't know. It's like one of those things when you're we're playing a lot of games, these 18xx games. Whenever you win, it kind of just seems like everything was easy for yeah, you. Sometimes you hit a wave, and maybe that was the kind of the same thing. Where it's just like, ah, oh, I just everything was right for me right then. I took it at the right time, sold it at the right time. It was great. But I really like Dungeon Pets. I thought it was good. I would happily recommend people go out and try it. It was cool. It was Sounds cool. great. Works with me. So I was lucky enough this cabin weekend to actually be able to play some games that I don't get to play that often. Um, and one of them being one that Mark has poo pooed being Keyforge. Poo. So my good poo. friend Eric came up to poo. the cabin with me. Much poo, poo much pooing. <laughs> You're throwing your poo shaped meeples from um, Dungeon Pets at me. So Keyforge, I've talked about it at length. It's a two player collectible deck game where you have different cards and you're trying to forge some keys. Still love it. I need to get out there. If you're in my local group, please ask me to play this game with you. I will happily teach you for some weird reason. Teaching Mark and trying to spread the good word that is Keyforge didn't didn't leave the best taste in my mouth. So I would like to play it with more people other than the people that are already interested in do it. I think it's the good great. news about Keyforge is I finally figured out what my I, I'm not going to say my beef. I actually think it's a good game. I figured out why it's not for me. I just decided that it's lighter than what I'm looking for in that style of game. And that's fair. And also you like deck building. That's part of the game for you. That's not part of for the sure. game for me. Yep. So you're obviously not going to like a game that doesn't have deck construction. Just not in the target demo. Makes sense. So Keyforge, don't know if it really applies to the whole strategy thing, but let's try to do it. I'd give it a 3D or a 2D, something along those hmm. lines. Uh, based on my single playthrough, one play. my one playthrough, <laughs> I would give it a 2B, solid 2B. There you go. Or at least we agree on the amount of rules in there. And it is getting more with the 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 card effects getting more set in stone it is becoming a little bit more rules crunchy because certain aspects of the game are actually becoming more written out but i found it more tactical and strategic thus to be makes sense i also got to play money bags this weekend another oink game that i imported from france um it's designed by jun sasaki and yoshi tiru shinohara my japanese is wonderful i know i'm the worst at japanese but anyway we've talked about this game in the past um it is a game where you all are robbers who are in the next town after doing a big bank heist in the 
lead person is going to distribute money into everybody's bags and you're stealing from each other, but you don't really know who has the amount of money. And if I steal from Mark's bag, Mark can challenge me. And whoever has the most money, if Mark challenges me and I have more money than him at the end of my steal, Mark gets my money. If he challenges me and I have less money than him, I get Mark's money. So it's really fun because it's kind of a funny game where you're like all holding your little bags and you can't really look in it and peer feel around to try to see how much money you have. So you're all kind of guessing on what people are doing and trying to read them. And it's also kind of a dexterity game because you don't want to make too much noise with your coins. But man, it was fun. And I actually finally got to play it at a larger player count. We've only played it at like four. I think we played it at six and it was so fun to just be like, who has the most money? And all the money is being passed around everywhere and trying to kind of read the room. It was really cool. I actually got my copy of that as well. It's still unplayed. So uh, my shelf of oink shame. There it is. <laughs> Your shelf of oink my, shame. My family wants to play this one, though, so I, it'll happen soon. Got it. With our gaming moguls little scale here, and I promise we'll be a little bit less adamant on doing this every single time. I'd probably give this one like a one or two and then probably a B. I think that's right on the nose. I'd give it a one B. Yeah, that's about right. The only thing that's kind of confusing is like how you can hold the bags, but you could probably just convey that idea by saying you can't know how much is in your bag. So just hold it by the top. That's how you hold it. Fair enough. That's money bags. A one B. I'll agree with you, Mark. I finally got a chance to uh, whip out a little more old hotness also with a cute medieval theme. Jake loaned me his copy of Imperial Settlers back around Christmas time, maybe. And it's been sitting and just with no chance to play it and so forth. I've owned 51st State and I like 51st State Master Set quite a bit. Played it a bunch of times, played it with my son and my son said, you know, I like this game. I think my sister is going to hate this one just because of the theme. And I agreed with her and I said, you know what? There's the same game with a different theme called Imperial Settlers. I'm going to borrow it from Jake. So Imperial Settlers, like 51st State, is a tableau builder where you pick a faction and you get some faction specific abilities. You draft cards at the beginning, and then you just take turns using resources to play those cards to build up the best civilization that you can while leveraging your faction-specific abilities. Last five rounds in this case, and whoever has the most victory points is the winner. My kids took to this one super quickly. William picked it up quick because he had played 51st State before. Elizabeth picked it up also pretty quickly, which was great. And she was happy because she loves Japan. She's been to Japan. And so she took the Japanese right away and just thought the theming on it was wonderful. And she actually ran away with the game and won it by a pretty significant margin, which is impressive because Japan is one of the tougher factions. They are, especially for a newbie. Good job. Yeah. So that was very popular here. I don't know that they were super happy about... (laughs) giving that one back to you but yeah i'd had it long enough i needed to get it back a few thoughts on it yeah i'd love to hear because i have i actually played this game with you no we've never played this game together interesting cool no okay so a few thoughts um production wise i loved the jake production of this one first off with the divider that's made out of mdf seventh go seven gaming insert uh lovely very helpful in setting up the game also, the bling job that you did on that thing with the Meeple Source resources in there, those are add-ons, right? The Meeple Source add-ons for the swords and the shields I have. Okay. Wasn't sure what was actually in the box, but yeah, beautiful to play with also. The beef I had with the production on that one is, you know, you could have maybe used more than six-point font on the card. Maybe? Yeah, it's it, they just made it so small. And I get it. The art is so cutesy. And if you actually lay it out in the right way, it makes a little pathway, which is cute. But yeah, I feel like an old person because I'm like holding the card super close to me. And the thing that's annoying is you can actually and this is why the six point font sucks. You can raise and destroy other people's cards. Yeah. Forget being it's able usually to see a little what- bit less efficient <laughs> if you don't have cards. But right. I literally have asked. I said, OK, John, what, what what card do you like? I'm sorry. I'm going to raise one. Which one should I do? Besides the resources, like Cut right what, to the what, chase. what's what's going on with the cards you actually like? And that's no big deal when the Japanese are playing because you can just kind of like see the common cards, you know, you can raise and get your resources. But when the Japanese are playing, both sides of their cards can be raised, not just their common cards. So you have to be like, oh, God, what do you have samurai on stuff? Uh, it's just and then you have to check each thing. There's so much downtime just learning and grokking what each card does that you're probably not paying attention to. Yeah, and during the drafting phase, too, you're supposed to put the cards out in the middle of the table and then snake draft the cards that are in the middle. You can't read them when they're in the middle. So we just we just drew four cards and passed them around. Maybe it's just because your table's so big and luxurious, Mark. You got to play on small poverty tables so everybody can see everything. That game takes up some room. That wouldn't work that well. 
Yeah, I mean, it spreads well. So what other thoughts did you have on Imperial Settlers? I'll save mine towards the end because I have a lot on this game. So I did actually, I like the change of having a faction deck versus a main deck. That's something that is not, as I recall, in 51st State, where it's just you don't have a faction deck per se. And being able to draw from either deck and have faction specific abilities as well as other specific abilities. I thought that was interesting. It's certainly simplified in the terms of like the resources you need to build things versus raise things versus so forth. And I thought that certainly streamlined it. It was quicker to play than 51st State, I think. And how many people did you play it at? We played it your player count? at three, three or four. Three. I would not recommend this game at four. It gets a lot of downtime in between turns. Yeah, I can see that. And plus just the number of trips around the table every round just would get <laughs> really, really long. Right. It gets kind of nutty. Sure. So I I did really like it. I think it's maybe more streamlined and more playable than 51st State Master Set. But I personally, personally like the theme of 51st State better just because, you know, yay post-apocalypse. Yeah, I'm not too big on the post-apocalypse theme. And I love the way that Imperial Settlers looks art-wise. So I prefer Imperial Settlers. And I also own Imperial Settlers. Played 51st State once, but I, I didn't see the need to own both of them. Yep. I'm sad that we've actually never played Imperial Settlers together because it's a really good two player game. It's a really good three player game, too, because it's not super head to head, but you are competing for certain things. You're interacting in a way that feels really good to me. And I have almost every single expansion to this game. It's expanded all the way to infinity. It is so cool. The one thing that's really annoying is they didn't do a good job of marking the expansion cards when they first started. So I never quite know how to interact with the expansions. There's supposed to be a way that you're actually supposed to like deck construct pre making your 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 actual faction deck is how it actually works oh but jake doesn't like deck construction i know that's honestly a big reason (laughs) (laughs) really play when there's always like two options either oh you can play this is how you're supposed to do for tournaments or you can just do this and it's it's like shove these cards in and take these cards and i'm like okay we're doing that way (laughs) i i think it's such a quaint little awesome tableau builder of doing things to do things kind of cube pushing moving stuff around action efficiency I just love the game. It's also funny, too, because did you guys play the first three rounds and say, this game's really fast? And then the fourth and fifth round took as much as the (laughs) the first three rounds each round. We actually played three rounds and then tore the game down because we wanted to finish our family game of 18 Lilliput that was set up on the table underneath (laughs) Imperial Settlers. Yay, game table. And so we played the first three rounds as a learning. Then we ran it back later on and played the entire game in an hour and a half. We, We buzzed through it quick. But a hundred percent. There's a ramp there in terms of term time goes as the game goes on. Right. Because in the first action, you're taking like maybe six actions. And then the last one, you're like, I just spent the entire deck. My other big complaint about this game is draws. It is so beneficial to pretty much always draw cards. Yep. That's what you're always pretty much looking out for is just draw, 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 keep on drawing cards, get a draw economy. So you can keep on getting cards. You can cycle through your personal deck so you can get all the really good cards out and played. Yeah, I would agree with that one. So I I liked it quite a bit. And um, if I was going to rate this thing, I would call it a 3C for sure. I agree. Do you like it, though? Where would you give it on a mark scale 1 to 10? I do like it. I would say both of the games are solid 7s. I would agree. I think I might have given Imperial Settlers an 8. But yeah, they're they're good games. I would happily try it. There is some issues with Imperial Settlers at higher player counts, and it can drag a little bit at those player counts. And it's it's not as easy a game as you would think. No. For the art, it does not convey the feeling that you would think. It's a pretty cutthroat little engine building game, and you can feel like crap if someone's just doing laps around you. So Definitely liked it. Would definitely play it again. Cool. And like you said, I don't need to own... Well, I may end up owning that one just because... <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get my daughter to play 51st State Master Set anytime soon. And she loved Imperial Settlers. So put it on the want in trade list and see if it'll pop up. Well, that's the perfect way to get that one to me, I think. Perfect. Another engine slash tableau builder that we played this week. Well, I played this week is Wingspan by Stonemaier Games, designed by Elizabeth Hargrave. Look at you, Mr. New Hotness. I know. I'm so cool. So our good bud Vin brought Wingspan to Wednesday and it was kind of, I think it was snowing. So everybody was kind of showing up at different times and we were like, let's just play something that's fast. And oh man, is Wingspan fast. So in Wingspan, you are different bird watchers, I believe, who are cultivating a bird environment to try to get birds to watch. But what that actually is, is it's a tableau builder where there's a bunch of different actions. You're building different tableaus of cards that are going to trigger. So there's four main actions in the game. You can get some food, you can get some birds, you can get some eggs, and you can get some more cards, which are the birds in this game. 
And what you're trying to do is you're trying to set up a big line of cards that are in the same environment of birds that will all kind of do the same thing and make your actions really good. So let's say, for example, whenever you take food, you can take a whole bunch of cards that will make your taking food more interesting. And then you get points throughout the game and you compare at the very end and you tally them all up and it's kind of a little bit of a point salad. But whoever's the most points at the end wins. Like all other Stonemeyer games, this game is produced wonderfully. It has this little uh, dice tower that's supposed to look like a, a, a birdhouse that is actually kind of unusable. I agree with you, Vince, here. But it just has this beautiful table presence. The cars are beautifully illustrated. Each one is an actual real bird with a really good drawing on it. It looks really cool when you play it out. It was a really good game. I think it's be a good game for someone who's kind of newer into the hobby and really isn't captivated by the theme. And it's incredibly replayable with the fact that all the cards are different, but they're not so different where you feel like certain cards are just objectively better than the other. I really think you should play this game, Mark. I think you're going to like it. Well, funny you should mention that. Uh, friend of the moguls, Mr. DZ, is super excited about getting this game. He's messaged me on a bunch of occasions just saying, oh, I'm really into birds and that sound that looks really great, and I've already pre-ordered all the upgrade stuff for it. And oh, I can't oh, wait he's to gonna get love that it. One, it's so. such <laughs> a good game. It's 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 really good. I'm I'm not clamoring to buy it, but I would really. I think this is a game for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are really going to like it. I think it's going to be a good hit. Um, and I just think there's not a lot to really complain about. It's light. It's fast. Maybe if you're a heavy gamer, steer clear of it. But I still even think if you're a heavy gamer, it's so fast. I don't think you can really complain about it. Yeah. So there you go, DZ. We validate your choice. I'd give it a 2B or a 2C, by the way, weight wise. OK, yeah, good to know. I haven't played this one and now I know where to put it mentally. Perfect. Fantastic. I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but we had it probably took us three weeks to get through due to a bunch of business travel by my wife. But as a thought experiment and just see how it went, I fired up a game of 18 Lilliput with my family, my wife, who's pretty financially savvy, along with my 12 year old, who's pretty strategic smart, and my 10 year old daughter who loves theme just to see how it would go, because, you know, it's supposed to be an intro to the 18xx world and a bridge game for people that are used to playing euros. And you know what? I had all those people sitting at the table. So I just thought I'd see how it would go off on that one. And I was not disappointed in the results. So 18 Lilliput, again, is the 18xx-ish game that has a lot of the 18xx tropes, but at the end of the day is an action selection game that's a little bit more Euro-styled with some financial chrome put on the outside of it. And a little controversial in the 18xx world because of the fact that it really isn't an 18xx, but it does teach some of those concepts. Now, I taught the whole family, and we played out maybe through the first half before two weeks of business travel, then returned and finished it out. So final thoughts on it. It was interesting to observe how it all went. Oh, did William's position crumble away from him? William won. That's the last thing you had said. He did, because he was very chummy from what I remember. Oh, he was, he yeah. Because he was very oh, far ahead. Yeah, he was smack talking on that one. It's interesting. My son does not do well with being locked out of doing things. Like if there's a rule in a game that causes you to lose your turn or something like that or discard your hand, he doesn't do well with that. And so there were some moments when his great little route got tokened into non-existence that he had to take a couple of deep breaths, to be quite honest with you. He was not oh, seriously. Happy. Yeah, he was not happy with that. And I had to explain to him, too, that I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. I know that looks bad, but check out this move you can do by going out and rusting everybody's trains out. Spoiler, I was helping them very liberally with strategy. So I was being oh, I'm sure. And I think that's the way to do it. I was being awesome teacher, teacher right in this way. game. Yeah, to really show them all the breadth and depth of things they could do. And, you know, the frown turned upside down pretty quick when he saw that he basically could cut everybody's runs in half by getting rid of all their trains and running alone with the huge runs at the end when with double and triple things with the D trains and the double scoring in the last round. So, yeah, he ended up winning. He loved it. Oh, my goodness. He he wants to play 1889 now. He got hooked by the whole thing. And more than anybody else at the table, he understood the strategy. He was asking a lot of questions during the game on should I do this or should I do that? I think I should do this because and he got it. And I was really impressed with how he was able to pick up on that. Yeah. My daughter bonded a lot with the theme. Like she really wanted to see all the cards that were that had Laputa because Castle in the Sky is one of her favorite movies. She absolutely wanted to play on the thematic side of the cards. She loved Malioli Goo and the theme she really bonded with. She needed a lot of help with strategy. And Got it. she did get it. And, you know, she finished in the lower half of the pack on that one. But I think she enjoyed it. You know, I think she said it was fun. It's maybe not my style of game. 
but she liked it. Cool. So at least, uh, at least, at least you got to give it played though. And that's, that's exactly the thing. The wife is the care bearer of the family. Okay. For sure. She does not like any kind of viciousness in a game and any kind of meanness. And she tolerated the token meanness in this game just because it was somewhat universal. But going forward, I don't know how much she's going to love 18xx because of some of the mean things that can be done. Yeah, it's incredibly interactive and incredibly butterfly effect interactive. Yeah, something mean you do completely ruins someone's game. That doesn't seem that mean at that point in time. Yeah, and that does not fly with her. So I, I think she enjoyed the play of this, and I think she'd give it another world and lock the strategy down more. But I don't know that it's going to entice her to keep going. So anyway. Wrapping that one up, great experiment. I think we we all enjoyed it. I don't know that two of the people in the family would pick it going forward, but everybody was glad they got a chance to try it. That's awesome. And hey, how long did it take? I know it's split out between XYZ Mini Nights, but... Oh, God, that's, that's really difficult. Um, m- more than is printed on the box. Got it. By a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I would imagine that you guys probably played this in about like four to six hours, probably, right? That's a good guess, yeah. Four yeah. is probably four is probably probably closer to four than six. But yeah, it was significant. I think what we should do is people that actually know and have played this game once. We should set up the game with 90 minutes left to go on a Wednesday and play it. And that'll be the real test if we can finish it in 90 See minutes. If we or can not. do it. Yeah, that would actually yeah, be interesting with a with a hard stop done at the end. Because that's my still my main complaint about this game is it just seems like it's going to take too much time for what I want it to be. Rules complexity on this one. I think it's comparable with a lot of midweight euros. There is some 18xx chrome that you have to explain about shares and so forth. Rules complexity, I'm going to give this one a three. Agreed. Strategy complexity, you know, that's really going to depend on your audience. I'm actually going to give it a D because of the... Because, you know, the, the action selection thing is complex with the strategy and maximizing your 16 turns that you get to take is hard. And also the right. timing on when do you start your second company and how do you manage trains and tokens is tougher than it should be. Not tougher than it should be. It's tough. So I think we're both calling this a 3D by the mogul scale, right? Completely agree. Bingo. Absolutely. Absolutely. 3D. See, this is easy, kids. We got to figure it out. All righty. Now, you got a chance, I'm jealous, to play a game that is easily on both of our top fives. Is that being generous? It's in my top five. Yeah. And I played it twice. So this Ooh. is to you, Kirk, who says that I never played the games as often as I want to. Um, <laughs> I play Yokohama a lot. He was throwing Yokohama. shade at you. At, by the way, he was throwing shade at you at Count of the North. Oh, I know. That's just ridiculous. I don't play the games I want to play. I do love Yokohama. The quote was, Jake blinged out his copy of Yokohama, and I haven't seen it since then. Well, Kirk doesn't like playing games that he doesn't own, so why would I ever play games with him? <laughs> Yokohama is a game designed by Hisashi Hayashi. I played this twice, both at two-player, and I have an interesting takeaway at the end here regarding the two-player thing. Yokohama is a game where you are Japanese businessmen after Japan no longer was isolationist. I can't remember. I think it's called like the Meiji Restoration or something. I can't remember the actual historical term for it. But pretty much Japan was isolated to all the world. And then uh, American general um, came in with a whole bunch of gunships and said, no, you're not going to be closed off to the rest of the world anymore. Let us in. Let us do business. And then it was like this whole big westernification and technological advancements of Japan. And one of the towns that you did that in was Yokohama. So that's what we're doing. We're collecting different goods and trading them to fill contracts and trying to get the most victory points by doing it. It's held up by this really interesting mechanism where you're taking actions on this pyramid of actions. So imagine a pyramid where there's four, three, two, one, kind of like a bowling pin. And each one of those spots is a worker placement spot functionally. And on your turn, you're going to lay down your assistants and then you move your guy and you have to move along a line that has an assistant or more at every spot. And you can stop at any point. But then once you stop, you take the action at that spot for the power equal to the number of assistants plus your president plus your buildings you have there. And so it's really cool because you have to be really spatial and figure out, OK, well, I know in three turns I want to I want to do this action. So I have to start building my workers up there so that when I actually get there with my president, I can do it really well. And it is such a good game. However, I don't really like it at two, which is sad because a little Kickstarter just wrapped up yesterday about a two player version of this game exclusively. And I kind of regret not backing it, Mark. I think you did the right thing by backing it. 
your good friend Mark has backed it. So, yeah, I think that it does suffer a little bit at two players. It isn't very interactive at two players. There's a lot of extra space on the board, and I think there is better games you could play at two. I have played it at two. It's fine. But the other challenge, too, is I think it's a little difficult to set up for a two-player experience, whereas I think one of the big things that Yokohama, the two-player game, does is make it dramatically quicker to set up and get going right away. So because of those reasons, I was excited to back the two-player version of that. Got it. Yeah. And so I I wish I would have, Mark. Tell me when the survey comes out, because I love Yokohama and it's such a cool game and I'm happy to bring it whenever. And I've brought it to, I think, three or four Wednesdays in a row now because I love it so much and I haven't played it enough. And I just I, I think it's not that good at two, which is pretty sad. If you ever do the church action or the import trade in action, but specifically the church action, the game ends when there's five people there. And I took a little technology that allowed me to do the church action better. So I kept on going to the church. It ended the game just a little bit too arbitrarily fast, in my honest opinion. So we'll happily play this at three or four any time of the week, any day. But I might pump the brakes on a two player game and suggest something else. This is a game I've rated a solid nine. Absolutely. One of my favorites. It's a big family favorite as well. My entire family loves playing this one. I think just it's beautiful on the table. I I think it flows really smooth. There's a lot of interesting decisions to make. It's a relatively simple rule set versed on the level of strategic complexity that's there. And I think it's just a perfect game. It's one of my absolute favorites. Completely agree. And we both spent so much time blinging out our copies. We better like them. For sure. No, we both passed on the deluxified version that just came up for sale as much as we said that we are sad that we missed it, because frankly, I think I actually like my box more and I wouldn't get a ton for paying a lot of money for a deluxified version of it. Right. So mogul thing, I'd give this a 3C or a 3D. I think we're probably at 3D on this one. I think that there is a little more heaviness to this in decision space. I don't think the rules are excessive. I think it's a solid three on the rules. I think it's it's either a hard C or a light D. I'd agree. Cool. Now let's do the train game section, Mark. Woo train games. We were lucky enough. Well, I was lucky enough to play two 18xx games this since the last recording. And my life is great, Mark. It's it's awesome. I was lucky enough to play 18 Scandinavia, which is one that I bought myself for my birthday. And I thought it'd sit on my shelf of shame for a while, but we got to play it pretty much immediately. When there's a will, there's a way, Jake. There it is. And so in 18 Scandinavia, it's a 18xx game sent in Scandinavia. But the thing that's interesting about this game is the player count, which I mentioned in a previous episode, is two to four, which is pretty weird for 18xx games. They're usually at least a five for number of players, and they usually don't play at less than three. And and by the way, cross off that two. <laughs> cross off no that, that two. Play, there's no way that plays well at two. It's a, any I financial game like that. Uh, you got the zero sum problem with that, though. Tell you what, I'll have to play it at two because I think it's actually pretty OK that you just don't have a lot of companies in the game. And it's such a small map. You're incredibly interactive. Anywho, the thing that's cool about this game is it's very small and it's very fast. And we played for about two hours with a pretty hefty teach. And we called it when someone was completely in the last place and we moved on to another game, which was pretty amazing. The fact that we were able to teach and play to some level of completion in two hours. And I think honestly, with another hour, we would have happily finished it. Just our buddy Brent did it wasn't in the best place and he wouldn't have gotten bankrupt, but he would have gotten really close. And I'd love to play it again. He was functionally eliminated. Yeah. So we just said, hey, let's wrap it up. Let's move on to something else and not drag Brent through two hours of crap. (laughs) I think we call that a TKO. Yes, total knockout. But it was really cool. I think the privates are really interesting in this game. You don't actually buy them over. You can buy them parts of it over. It's interesting. And the auction works a little different. It's not a waterfall auction. You actually do an auction to see who's going to buy first. So let's say we start an auction. Then once everybody passes, whoever won that auction gets an option to buy any miner he wants or she for face value. Which is weird. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that is strange. Yeah. And then the companies are cool. There's a big nationalization event that occurs. It is neat. What's also weird, and this is my final thing I'll say about this game, besides the fact that I really like it, is the only city tile that exists in this game is a tight turn. Hmm. That is really strange. Isn't it? The yellow cities, pardon me. Yeah. Is that thematically trying to identify the fact that in Scandinavia, there's like a lot of fjords and so forth? I don't know, Mark. (laughs) I don't know if a tile can be thematic. But it was weird because all of a sudden we're looking, I'm like, did they miss tiles? And then I was like, oh, I guess you just got to turn tight every single city. 
So it made actually implications of going to cities not as profitable because you can't always blust through them and go to the next thing. It's almost like you're kind of dealing in your own little area with a tight zigzag on the city. So like the inverse of 1830, where the only t- city tiles are straight throughs. Correct. It's it's the functional opposite. But I love that I own this game. Weird. I think it's fix a really good niche in our in our group for a really fast 18xx game that isn't super stock shenanigans and it's just, it's really fun. I think you're going to have a really fun time with it. It's a really good game. 18 Scandinavia by David G.D. Hecht. Hey, I'm in for playing it because, you know, haven't met an 18xx game I didn't like. Oh, wait, I have. We'll talk about that later. Oh, you have? Oh, <laughs> you have. I don't know. You disliked it. That's interesting. Okay, cool. We also got to play another game called 18 Mexico. I got to play it this weekend, a three player game. And you know how I always say that one of my favorite 18xx games is whatever one I've most recently played? Sure. <laughs> I think 18 Mexico might be one of my favorites. Hard stop. Okay. Oh, it's so cool. So the train rush in this game is just brutal. And so the whole game, you're just kind of posturing. It almost feels like you're kind of circling each other, ready for a fight. And then once it goes down, that's what you've been planning for. You know, you're just doing these slight adjustments, sussing each other out, figuring out where it's going to be, just so you can make sure to get a permanent train and not go bankrupt. But man, it was cool. We played it at three players, me, Duncan, and Eric. And it was so good. So in 18 Mexico, you're building railroads in Mexico. It's got a couple of fun little small miners that help lay track, but they're kind of trash other than that. And they get traded in for a thing. And then this big national railroad that comes in, but he comes in late. It is such a cool game, Mark. And it played out completely different from the time that we played at four player. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it the time we played it there with uh, Vinny's copy of it. And now that there's not one but two copies in our group, I think the chances of us and well, and also it being a shorter link that can get played on a abbreviated weeknight definitely speaks to it as well. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll get a chance to play that again more in the near future. I'm saying it, Mark. This is one of my top two favorite 18xx games. Top three, top three, top three, also top three, top three favorites. That's mm-hmm. high. That's high. That is a high and list. honestly, those top three are kind of are just amorphous right now and just constantly shifting around. But. That one's up there. Interesting. So I mentioned a second ago that there are some that we don't like and me specifically. And I think I've come around to the fact that maybe not a big fan of 18 Ireland. Yeah, I'm surprised. So I will say for the listeners at home, this statement is met with a little bit of butt hurt. Is that fair to say, Mark? That's 100% fair to say. But I also (laughs) think that that is the reason that I'm maybe not so excited about this game anymore. We have now played this online twice. Uh, we're in a five player game right now, currently with myself, you, Damien, Aaron, and Michael. And it's the same group we played with the first time. And I think the big problem with this game is that because of the fact that there are hostile mergers, a lack of money, and a strange tile set, it's and, 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 There are also uh, rotted trains as well as rusted trains, these little kind of half speed crappy trains that can't get very far and their hex tiles. All of those things together make their incredibly high whoops I lose factor. Every 18xx has minefields that you can step into. This one seems to have them more than ever where it's incredibly easy to just take out somebody at the knees and make sure that they're not going to compete for the entire rest of the game. And because of the fact there's these cheap rotted trains that never allow you to escape the spiral of poverty, you're stuck in the game rather than going bankrupt for the rest of the game. So you're out, and there's no way you can get back in. So to wit, what happened was, in both games, had plenty of money to invest, and in 18xx, it's always a bad idea to leave money in your mattress. So I cross-invested a little bit and do what I perceived as good companies, only to find out that, oh, hey, guess what? I dumped those on you, and you're out of luck. Again, something that can happen in every 18xx game. It was my fault, but there was there's there's no way to recover from that. There just isn't. Yeah. I think the fact that it's there's no way to recover from it and the fact that which which is present in any 18xx game. I think that's universal to all 18xx games. But in this one, there's just so many weird things going on that you may not think it's as bad of a position as it is. It's just so fluid. Yeah, that's fair. And the fact that the mergers are poised and set up to be this really cool thing that like oh, I started this really crappy company and I voted to merge with you and oh, it's a hostile merger. I just don't really think that that'd be conveyed in this game. It, I've heard it posed as like the the Indonesia bid kind of merger things, but I don't think they're similar at all. I think that Indonesia does a really good job of doing that. I think this one is just kind of a weird little everyone trying to 
set up to make sure they're not hostily merged so they can emerge with somebody else. I don't think it's that interesting. I made what I consider to be some very good strategic moves early in the game to set myself up to proactively merge my companies and put myself in a good space. And I did that successfully. I avoided hostile mergers. I ended up in a positive space only to be just sold down to the point where my company was worthless and I didn't have enough money to do anything. It's like, okay, oops, I lost. I don't know. Yes, I know I could play better, but I don't know. It seems too easy to step in minefields in this one or to have somebody push you into a minefield. Right. And um, so I actually am the one who pushed minefield. Um, I will 100% take a take it, take acknowledgement of that. But I just did it just because I didn't want my company anymore as a liability. So I just thought I'd give it yeah. to you. And done. I'm not blaming you. It was a good move on your part. And it was a bad move on my part to buy a second share of your company. But it the thing was, it looked like a reasonable company that you that a person would run. That's because I withheld and then rebought in my own shares over the next couple of turns, or I actually technically bought a train from it and then used that money to rebuy shares. So it didn't seem like I could dump it on you. And I had to orchestrate everything by pulling shares out of the market to make sure I could dump it on you. I think there's other complaints there besides that. Yes, you can be pushed into minefields very easily, but I think that's pretty true to a lot of 18xx games. Maybe this one's a little easier. It's just there's a lot going on and it doesn't seem to achieve what I wanted it to. Yeah. And, um, you know, that 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 essentially happened at the 50 percent mark of the game. And now I, I can't go bankrupt because I can buy these cheap trains that won't earn me any money. So I got to sit right. there and just play out my turns with these lousy trains that earn me no money. So so oh the well. question I do, I do have a question for you. Would you yeah. rather play 61, which is Russia for those listening at home, 1861, or would you rather play 18 Ireland? I believe I would rather play 61. Me too. That's kind of how I feel about Ireland. I was like, okay, they feel kind of similar. 18 Ireland almost felt like it's awkward, angry cousin who's just always mad and having these weird mergers and you can't really ever set yourself up well. And maybe it's not as much of a of a snowball, but it's more of a like, you suck. I'm going to dump this crappy company on you. But I just I, I don't I didn't really enjoy it. I was actually debating on not running it back, but I'm happy we did it because it kind of yep. solidified yeah. my opinions on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, it seems like a it's a hurt or be hurt game. Right. You know, like you're 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 more worried about hurting other people and you're more worried about not being hurt than you are about trying to do something positive and proactive. I don't know. Maybe, but maybe that's what people like about it. So if that's 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 maybe what be your cup sure. of tea. So 18 Ireland, you know, we're we're approaching the end on that one. Uh, probably can't come soon enough for me. <laughs> All right. Well, we promised the listeners that we'd go back to a sub hour episode and hopefully this one will be that. At least we're a little closer on that one. And hey, those of us that have given us feedback saying, man, we love it when you guys talk about games. <laughs> you got your whole full meal deal on that one today. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me, Mark. Hope you have a good rest of your day. Another great one. Thanks, everybody, for listening. For Mark and Jake, we're the Gaming Moguls. Good night, everybody. Good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.